And then we get to hear it twice, always. Yeah. It's such I don't a good... know how we got that feature. Oh. <laughs> there we go. That worked? Ah, yeah. Christian parried yeah, the, uh, parried the, du the duplicate. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, TDR. What was it? Technical difficulties regularly, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now we've got now now tonight's episode. I think will be three dudes ranting. Ooh, yeah, here wow. for your. Uh, we're here with your. Uh, Maybe it's uh, more ruminating. We feel way too strongly about uh, that. You can cancel us on Twitter for. Wow. You know, I've I've said for quite some time that there's not enough of that on YouTube and Twitch. As I've I've said, there really needs to be more. Like bunch of white guys ranting about you, <laughs> trivial you entertainment. Be, you may be surprised to find that that's a lot of people don't hold the opinion that there's not enough of that. Really, <laughs> yeah. really, huh. but a lot of yeah. people might feel. That well, let me give them yeah. a piece of my yeah. mind. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm. Uh, well. Uh, Today is our, uh, I don't know what we call these, review, talkback, the, the end of a game episode. We chat about the game that we just played, uh, this time with some light pre-done audience interaction. Uh, Shoutouts to the Discord. Uh, Thanks to the Discord. Yeah. Thanks to the Discord. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, really today we're just going to be chatting about uh, 2400, the system. I think also just about how cool cyberpunk is overall um <laughs> very cool and yeah all that kind of stuff um yeah so uh i was thinking uh a good place to start uh is uh with the setting right with with cyberpunk and uh uh all of the different options uh that you can have with it and i'm gonna uh i'm gonna put dan on the spot here because i know you're a fan Ooh. <laughs> uh, just rap about cyberpunk as a setting. Yeah, 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 three dudes yeah, rapping. Yeah. That's what it should be. Just three dudes, dudes rapping. rapping. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I guess like, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, cyberpunk is my favorite genre to do at this point, uh, and I have really been struggling finding a game that lets me handle cyberpunk without like just being suffering from what i think a lot of sci-fi rpgs suffer from which is just an immense amount of rules um <gasps> second uh lightweight cyberpunk game that i've ran i guess the second one also i've ran with dan and max um, huh. as players uh which is very exciting to me and i don't know i think this one did 2400 did a great job of having just enough rules um to where I could just sort of add glue cyberpunk fixings on top of it um, and giving all of that fluff in the rule book that I think you need to uh, get into a, a setting. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I, I like, I've been a, a big fan of, fan of cyberpunk and, and there was a particular point where Christian and I kind of mutually discovered that we were big fans of it in, you know, coming at it com in completely different eras. Um, and when I was, I think when I was in college, um, you know, read 
Gibson's Neuromancer. I think in the first episode, uh, Vance, our viewer Vance, who's with us right at the moment, called me out for making a whole bunch of Snow Crash references. And of course, you're correct. Mm. Um, I've read Snow Crash a couple times. I think it's like kind of the best of the breed. It's wonderful. Uh, there's a, there's a, you know, I'm a big fan of Bruce Sterling. Uh, Bruce Sterling's done really great stuff. And when I, when I was in college, they, he had a big compilation, I think, called inside the reality studio that had like a whole bunch of short stories and kind of was a great primer. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> uh, I love that. I don't have that with me right here at the moment. Um, but, um, uh, you know, and some, some of his short, some of Sterling's short stories are great. So, you know, there was a, there was a dedicated, so this is the first, like I've only played cyberpunk RPGs with Christian like this. You've, you've huh. seen all of the times that I've actually played. I think around 1990, there was a dedicated RPG, like you say, that was a big book RPG called Cyberpunk. Have you ever, have you ever read right? that? Yeah. Or played that? Yeah. Yep. Um, that one I haven't uh, read or played, um, but I have investigated the, the new rehash of it or the, the review of it, which is Cyberpunk Red, which I've heard good things about. Um, again, just kind of a lot of, like, the book is one of those big, yeah. like, D&D sized books and I'm just like yep. I know there's going to be a lot of rules about computers and I don't know if I need to know all that. <laughs> just like in real yep. life unfortunately not even a joke this time uh, <laughs> Cyberpunk Red I think is one of the one of the books I looked at the preview of on drive through and then did not purchase afterwards which is very rare <laughs> because I think I was like this looks like what you said which is not a type of you know not knocking that type of game not a type of game I mm. generally like uh Interesting. Uh, Vance, actually, at the, at the moment is, so I'm looking at the chat here. Vance is reminding me that I mangled up. Uh, Sterling's compilation is called Mirror Shades, which is which ah. is also a great title. And and that brings to mind the, 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 the other compilation that I tangled up a bit. It's actually called, which is even better, it's called Storming the Reality Studio. I guess I should look oh, up exactly who did those. Much cooler. Right? Actually, I know. also I even cooler. I mean, the original title, I was like, that's one of the coolest titles I've ever heard. And the actual title I, is right? Steps Cooler. Yeah, right? Um, who is edited by Larry McCaffrey is who that is, 1992. Yeah, when I saw that on the, it's, it's, and it's, and it's, uh, it's got a great, it's like got great creepy art on the cover from the people in San Francisco that like wire up actual an dead animals to robots and have them fight, whatever the hell they're called. What? what? Oh man, that we can't start oh, talking no. about that. That will definitely be the entire amount, the entire oh, no. length of the show. Uh, oh no, you didn't. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna tuck that one. <laughs> I'm gonna tuck that one down for later, though. That's gonna require some additional Google searches. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, 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 yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, does any other viewers know what that what that group is that I'm, oh, that I'm thinking of? Uh, that sounds um, horrible. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, like a precursor to BattleBots. Actually, is that um, what the hell are they called? BattleBots um, is Cyberpunk now. That's really um, yeah. Uh, God, all these oh. things, all these things are I'm digging out of my brain. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, Just, I don't know what they are. Okay. My bad. I wasn't pro 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 <laughs> properly prepared to talk about that, unfortunately. 
who thought it, who knew it would come Point up? Is, you know, I uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty deep into the cyberpunk lore at one point. Um, <laughs> so I was happy to have a game show up that that used some of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I slightly I, uh, derailed that a little bit. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just happy we got to the point where I could find out there are human beings who turn animals into robots to make them fight. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I really like the 2400 rules. I bought the whole package on Itch and read through most of them. And I liked all of them. And I like that it seems like you can kind of plug and play mechanics outside of the main die resolution mechanic whatever you want to call it yeah yeah um if anyone hasn't already i really encourage you if you like these kinds of one pager games to check out 2400 it's a whole collection um and it is just like the same rules with like a little extra setting and uh world building uh, attachments uh, for just a wide range of sci-fi settings. Uh, right, really, there's, I... one, there's one where you play like uh, uh, bionic animals. There's a Matrix one. There's Matrix like a cool. dark one. Um, my, uh, yeah. my favorite one was, uh, was one where you live in a universe where uh, everyone's like soul is uploaded to like a mainframe and so your characters don't die they just their body gets destroyed but then you just get it downloaded into a different body mm -hmm. uh yeah yeah and i was also impressed with the uh, uh 2400 rules um I have, uh, and this is kind of one of the things that I wanted to talk about, was these kinds of one-pager games, which I am addicted to buying uh, because they're $3 on itch or yeah. something. And I'm like, yeah, you know, what else am I going to do with $3? Um, they're all really, like, hit or miss on if there's enough there other than just, like, a really funny idea. Uh, and I think 2400 really had a great balance of that. Um, and I think this kind of pulls in one of the questions from the Discord. Uh, Shoutouts to Baki. Thank you so much for, for adding some questions. Who's um, probably here right now. Uh, who's probably here right now. Um, yeah, uh, talking about like uh, educated, like where the rules uh, fall short and dealing with the penalties and damage because uh, that's mm. usually where these pagers fall uh, short for me is like they have like a dice mechanic, but then nothing to tell you what to do with it. Um, and twenty four hundred has this really clean like you're either hurt or not, or you're dead. And if you're hurt, everything sucks, and you break <laughs> stuff, which I think really one leads into cyberpunk, where stuff is such a big part of playing a role playing game. That cyberpunk yeah. is a cool game. Um, having to make that choice. I mean, for me as the DM, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I'm curious what, what, how you guys felt that went whenever I like posed that, like, you know, get brutally injured or break a thing. Um, because I thought that was great right. and really helped me like really pull the trigger on just, I'm just gonna, just gonna mess you up. <laughs> um, I thought that worked well. 
Go ahead, Max. Oh yeah, sorry. No, no. If you have, if you have more thoughts, go for it. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I thought uh, that worked pretty well, and I I, I will say that um, this is the, it's the most minimalist rule set I've ever played with. So, and I and I tend to think like sort of doing D and D OSR type stuff that I'm in the on the minimalist end of things, but this is the smallest, shortest uh, rule set that I've ever played with, and it it does actually fit on one sheet of paper. Like the, so the whole thing with 2400 inner city blues, what, what we've been playing with literally just sits on one sheet of paper, you know, digest size, you fold it over, it's four pages on one sheet. Um, and I was like impressed by how much mileage you can get with such an incredibly small rule set. Um, so that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, and I thought that the, 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 the damage rules felt, felt about right. So we were, we'd get hit. And I could see here that, you know, one option would be just you're dead and out of the game. And like I was joking in the first episode, I actually did have multiple characters made up as uh, replacements if I needed them, which is pretty, pretty old schooly. Um, but then when when, you know, equipment got wiped out, uh, it felt, uh, you know, I'm glad to still be in the game, but it felt pretty serious as a matter of fact. So I actually thought that worked pretty well. Yeah, that's that's basically exactly how I felt. And this is, I mean, I have I played a lot of these like one page games, but they're almost always like jokes. Like they're not really meant to be. Like twenty four hundred feels way more like a system. Like if you wrote yeah. a couple more pages, you'd have a like a complete system. My my yeah. only complaint is that I felt a little confused as to which items should be breakable and which were not, which is maybe just due to the fact that my character sheet was in my notebook just on a, and written in pen because I'm an idiot. Uh, that was the one thing, because I, I agree with Dan that they felt like a really bad consequence, but it was cool to not be dead. And I thought that was a great balance. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that of like what can be breakable. Uh, and I would say like, in terms of that, like the damage rules, that's the only really part where I was like, super fuzzy on. Because I, and the kind of metric I went with is in the in the rules, it talks about uh, uh, bulky quality being something an item can be bulky, meaning it like, takes up a, a lot of space, and you have to carry it with both hands, right? Like Dan's character's uh, deck, or a suit the of deck, armor. Yeah. Uh, um, and it mentions that you can add the bulky quality to break it for damage. And so that's kind of where again. I drew that. It, uh, I think it's in the synth skin when it's talking about the fake skin you can get. You can get it armored, which adds the bulky quality, but lets you break it. Um, and so uh, that's kind of how imagined items, items of a certain size or of a certain, like, like a cyber limb felt appropriate to break because it mm. was critical to your character and makes sense, right? Even when you think about it logically. And maybe that's the rule, just like the rule of does it make sense that this would yeah. break if you get shot? Um, yeah, but that's kind of what I was thinking uh, when when dealing with that kind of damage stuff. I, yeah. I like that. I mean, and I will say both, the deck could really just. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say that the the deck is specifically called out in the rules as one thing that's specifically it's bulletproof. It's in a bulletproof case, which is bulky. Um, oh, so that, interesting. that's specifically part of that character type that, that their deck is automatically like that. Um, I wonder if you could just 
flag an item as significant. And if an item can be both significant and breakable, it's a con like you can find a way in the narrative to make it make sense that that thing broke and you suffer, you know, you then definitely have a consequence. Mm. Uh, That's good. Because I can definitely yeah. see the instinct to game like, well, I'm carrying uh, this big, stupid, like, what did I have? A big taser thing, but I don't give a shit about it. I, can I get that broken? Like, I, I hate this thing. <laughs> um, and I, I don't, I like the idea of being able to avoid gaming that by having to call the item significant to you, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Plus, yeah. as you might have noticed in the last game we played, I have a just intense hoarding, like rat-like desire to pick up everything in role-playing games and shove it in my little pocket. So I was really happy to see that be a system mechanic. Uh <laughs> yeah, that's that's nice. I will say, you know, that the, it's funny because the the damage injury hindrance thing is actually not super well. We, it's for for a one sheet rule set. It's not super clearly connected on page two because yeah. it says like in the in the basic mechanic it says for this role if you're risking death you die that's it and then way down further the page it says defense say how one of your items or cyber limbs breaks to turn a hit into a brief hindrance broken gear is useless until repaired and so i think it's i feel like for me every time i go to that page to try to sync that up i'm a little bit confused about what it's saying at the top versus what it's saying yeah. at the bottom but i mean we figured it yeah. out i think that's a good point. And I think that kind of goes to uh, Vance's question in the chat here, which is that yeah. challenge and consequence system that I think is like the main, the other half of the, the whole 2400 is like, because the way I interpreted that was if death is an option and you fail, you're dead no matter what. Mm. But you can break stuff to avoid... You can break stuff if the if the result if the consequence is like injury, right? Um, okay. Or if it's if you roll in that middle space where you get a minor setback, right? That huh. is then if it's death, you die or you can break something and live. Um, as I say I, uh... that, I implemented that exactly, but that is kind of my. Uh, 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 the theoretical thought of it. <laughs> that that is also I, uh, how I read it, and I and I don't think we ever had like I don't think you ever declared death is on the line. That that didn't ever happen in the game, right, Christian? It might have once. Yeah, in, I can't remember. I just scrubbed it from my head. Well, uh, we, say we, there, we also might have been that? joking about it. So uh, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder if like the consequences and damn it or you know just the consequences roll was really meant to be both the rolling and the damage mechanic and that the idea of breaking equipment is just kind of thrown in the way it is because it's like here's one idea of what consequences other than death could be that are still significant you know because i can definitely see when looking at the negative consequences mechanic is that it kind of feels weird on like it's a lot on the dm to call this one death like that's a big that's a big thing to say so i wonder if you just never really get to death and that you kind of need these intermediate ones up until it's like well clearly you failed a bunch of roles or you're trying something crazy now death makes sense like how many times can you call for a debt may see you know, make this role or die right. role in a game 
Yeah. Um, a, a lot. A lot, depending a lot, on the Well, it depends. That's true. That's true. Because <laughs> uh, I visually, right, see, I read it the same way Christian did, and that's actually why I made the backup characters, because I actually forced, mm. like, in, in, in advance, I actually foresaw a lot of, oh, you funny. know, roll okay. or die results. So I actually expected that to happen quite commonly. Like, if I if I was running it out of the box, I probably would have had a lot of death results, probably. Mm. That's really interesting. You're right. Yeah. Uh. That's where I think, like, the setting, knowing the setting and having a good theme helps. For me, at least, like, knowing that it was cyberpunk, like, I feel like a cyberpunk game has kind of a flow to it that starts, like, not low stakes, but, like, lower stakes of, you know, you're breaking into a smaller security place where there's just some backwoods guards in a swamp. Like, that's... Probably you're not going to die there. That wouldn't be very interesting. And probably it doesn't make sense if you're hardened criminals. But when you're dealing with private security on a heavily protected and very expensive boat, they'll probably try to just kill you and not even look twice at Mm. you. Uh, Which helps kind of like build up the consequences to like starting off. Yeah, probably not death. And until you get to those really interesting situations which i think at least when i try to think about cyberpunk uh, as a session that's kind of what i'm going for <laughs> i mean i can i can totally sympathize with dialing up you know i guess that's a referee decision to dial up the drama like that which makes total sense and it and it reminds me a lot of uh paul's uh now fearful end system where his rule book mm. specifically says like in a four-hour convention game something horrible happens in the first hour, you're gonna draw one of the insanity cards. In the second hour, you're probably gonna draw two. And three in the third and fourth in the fourth hour. So um, I can, I, that you know, I can make sense of that. Yeah. I, yeah. I do agree though that it is a lot on the GM and um, going back to the, the like consequences question, um, I that's something that I do wanna like give props to this game for because I feel like failing forward and like making sure and hard lines right are kind of things that I or 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 hard moves right not hard lines uh are things that I bandied about in the like indie RPG scene and I've never really been able to like wrap my head around what the heck does that even look like um but just having the like the, the rule in the book on the paper be set consequences before anybody even rolls a die because the mm-hmm. risk reward of the roll is what you're rolling about really helped me kind of kind of grasp that and be like well yeah you know are you going to like is a failed hacking roll you don't get in or is a failed hacking roll you trigger security and you get what you want mm-hmm. yeah Maybe maybe um, you could. So I'm I'm not sure people are are uh, totally aware of exactly what the mechanic is. Maybe Christian, you could describe huh. exactly what the right. what the little minimalist rolling mechanic is. Even oh yeah. So um, right, if uh, I guess we didn't really uh, cover it too much in the live play, um, but so for every roll, you have a skill. Uh, it starts at a d6, and your character uh, enhances it uh, just up a die type going up to presumably to 20. Um, and when you make the roll, uh, you compare it to a chart, a success chart. Uh, and a one and two is a uh, critical failure. A three and four is a uh, 
is a success with a setback or or maybe a, a failure with no consequences uh and a five and six is a success uh and it encourages you if you get higher than a five or six to increase the the severity of the success right so if you rolled like a 10 that's a a big success and you did really well uh, although that isn't outlined in the actual rules we mostly yeah, roll ones and twos, of course, so we got to experience that end of the system <laughs> quite a lot. Just a big part of that that I wanted to add is it tells you the like main role of the, the DM in this system is to then set the consequences. Say, like, you're encouraged also to fully explain, like, what happens if you fail, right? Uh, and I tried my best in that. There were, there were times didn't but uh didn't do it too well but saying right i think to dan when you were hacking like oh yeah if you fail you're gonna trigger security or something bad will happen or it will take more time if you if you do poorly um which i i think is really great i might do that for all of my uh, uh dice rolling games from here on out yes yeah interesting um sorry i'm really talking over everyone tonight uh, uh, I'm still on these painkillers from my wisdom teeth extraction. I'm going to blame that. Uh, <laughs> um, I generally, I have a big issue with mechanics where the DM has to decide or make something up for every single player role. Uh, that is also, I think, a feature of, uh, Apocalypse World. That is why I can never manage to run that game for, uh, or variations of that for very long. Hmm. Uh, this felt hmm. nicer. I mean, obviously I wasn't DMing, but this felt nicer than, ju than something like that. Cause at least it codifies it in a way that like, well, the person's making a role. There probably is some consequence to them not getting what they clearly want something. And so there'll be some consequence to them not getting it. So at least kind of eases uh, you into that a little more, I think. Yeah. Um, whereas I think Apocalypse World uses that DM moves. It's been a long time now, where yeah. you kind of have to make something up wholesale, yeah. and the DM is required to relate how it is to the role, whereas here it feels like the player is sort of maybe more in control of that. Um, yeah, I like, I like this. Having, I, like I like having the consequences, system. though, yeah. Yeah, I like this system a lot more for my uh, money than uh, like uh, the apocalypse world system because it feels like I'm always in the perspective of the player character. Like I don't mm, have to, okay. for some reason, apocalypse world flips that around and now I'm dealing with this meta <clears throat> narrative situation. It's kind of reversing that to me. And I mean, frankly, this, this 2400 systems felt very, very old school gaming of the the referee is is in charge of the world i'm in charge of my decisions so you know christian is putting forth a here's the things that could possibly happen with your next action i get to decide whether i pursue it or not um and that felt very old school that felt very natural and it felt very staying in the the character and perspective of ipc and i will say i was almost half surprised for a game of this recent um vintage that that it doesn't have uh these player take control of the narrative mechanics is i'm kind of accustomed to almost any newer game like apocalypse world or something to have some kind of formalized rule for now it's dan's turn to take over and describe what the setting and the environment is 
And I'm not super fond of those because it throws me out of the perspective of my PC. And this felt very natural. And it also felt that it that it helped the minimalism of it, that the, you don't have to have a bunch of formalized rules for now. It's Max's turn to take control of the scene. Yeah. And, the, and the roles are very clearly delineated. The referee, Christian, describes the world and the players decide what you do about it. And for me, that's classic RPG stuff. That's, uh, I mean, I, I think it's really cool that uh, this is that this system Dan described as old school. Because when I read it, I thought this would be a system Dan wouldn't like. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I, I have trouble describing games that do have those narrative control mechanisms as like rules light. To those in my head, those are kind of like I know the rules aren't die rolling or math rules, but to me, those are rules heavy and like. Rules light means just the die resolution mechanic. Um, that's one thing I like about the game Quest, which is what we're playing in our our regular group. Uh, it does not really have; it just has that's what it has it has the die rolling mechanic, and then doesn't have that narrative control thing for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Now with Quest, you have there, there, I feel like there's a little bit of a hiccup in that that. I think Max, when you're running it, you have a little bit. You find it just a little bit challenging sometimes that there's the the middle ground on the roll. There's the clearly yeah. success range. You roll a d20, success is above ten. Clearly failure is like below six or something like that. And there's this middle ground where after the roll happens, you Max, the referee, have to come up with well, it could be this, could be this kind of quasi bad thing or this kind of quasi bad thing. Which yeah. one do you want to pick? And you're Making the decision after the value. Been made. Right, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough choice. So if you get, I think you're right, I think it's between 6 and 10, although I always forget the range, despite the fact that I've been running this game for like a year now. Um, it is, yeah, the DM comes up with two things, and then the player has to pick which one they like. That does irk my having to come up with something on every roll, and you're right, it does give narrative control to the player in a way there. Although, I, it's in a limited way, I guess I'll say. You, you do have to choose one of those two things. You don't get what you want. Uh, and I have, I mean, that's that's one, not to make this about Quest, that's one where it's kind of impressed me. Like, I still am too lazy to really want to do that every time. But the player reaction to having to make that choice is often so good that it makes the uh, effort worth it for me. Which is kind of, okay, I'll bring it back around, I can do this. Uh, that's what I liked about the consequences here, though. It felt good to me. Like, it felt fun to fail because of the way those consequences were. It was fun to me to be like, uh-oh, my equipment's gone. I'm, I'm just like a broken robot now. There's nothing I can do. Like, having those consequences felt like, even though it wasn't giving it to me to choose what the bad thing or the partial success was, it, it kind of felt that way of, like, you know, it had a similar feel to me, I guess, where you get a good player reaction out of the role. Yeah, I I tend to to like those uh, the ambiguous rules rules I know more than either of you do. I think because it helps train me. Christian's to, the maximalist to rules uh, advocate in all forms. <laughs> I think. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them because <laughs> uh, it really helps me. And I think uh, twenty four hundred did a similar thing with the consequence setting um, of just eliminating roles that aren't interesting. Because if I have to think about what a tough choice is for this role, and I'm just like, nothing is interesting here, I'm just going to throw the role out. Because 
you know, I, I, I'm not interested in like doing a, a just a hard fail um, generally in my games, uh, unless the hard fail is also interesting. Um, and the consequences in this especially helped me do that. Um, and as I got into it, I, you know, I felt like I could. The fact that it was so light, I felt like very uh, empowered to just make the consequences whatever the hell I wanted. Like, maybe it's time. Maybe it's someone notices you. Maybe you don't yeah. look as cool as you do this thing, you know? I, I really think by the by the last session, you were really flowing with that, too. I felt really good about basically all the all the roles coming up at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I like, so there's, again, in a game this incredibly short, I was, I was, it, 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 I'm, I'm impressed that apparently this is basically all you need for a role-playing game. Um, and there's one single paragraph here, um, you know, and then, and then the players and the ref will be working together to, you know, agree that this is a reasonable way for the world to work. There's one single paragraph in the rules titled running the game. You get one paragraph on how to run the yeah. game. And what it says there, and I think, the, and it's funny because I think these are all really, I think these are all legitimate, valuable things that took me possibly decades to learn. So I was like, that's great. I wish I'd known this. <laughs> I wish I'd known that's this cool. a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> one of them was like Christian said, the players only roll to avoid risks. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. That's great. And then the run in the game section says, establish as a group lines not to cross in play. Great. Uh, encourage players to veto content as needed. Great. And again, that's very minimalist. Like I like like I got to admit, it's funny because both in a lot of role playing games and um, the improvisation book that we reviewed on Wandering DMs the other week has you know references to very sizable, very long safety tools. And mm -hmm. I fear sometimes, and it's actually something that we said to players on on our the Big Bad show. That we were doing, and sometimes I worry that that itself is kind of gatekeeping. That all of a sudden there's a yeah. there's a large number of formal rules that people have to digest, and it actually comes off as kind of scary that you need this much formalized security stuff around it. So I, I personally like this. I say, players, if there's something that you really don't like that bothers you, tell me, and we'll veto it. Uh, fast forward or pause or rewind, redo for both pacing and safety. That's reasonable. I'm willing to say that. That's fine. Um, and then it says, um, and then, and then beyond that, it says present dilemmas and problems you don't know how to solve, move the spotlight, uh, to give everyone time to shine. This is all great. And then, um, oh geez, where's the part? Um, I like right, that, and then uh, under supports minimalism, even for safety rules. <laughs> you know, I want to get the point across and get, I mean, the point's the game, right? The point, I mean, right, I don't right. want to have a whole session zero where we're just talking about yeah. the game. I want people, I want right. new players to experience the actual game and not talk about the game, frankly. And then it says, um, if killed, make a new character to be introduced as soon as possible. Favor inclusion over realism. That oh, I, right. So, so get a get get a player back into the play, even if it's even if it's not reasonable that they would show up. And I think you guys have seen me struggle with that with D&D &D over the years, right? There was a point where I said, you died, make up a new character, even if the fight's still going on, you're back in the game as soon as your sheet's done. Um, and it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time. I have had people sitting out for an hour or two, you know, wow. because their character died. 
I mean, it's happened. I've done that to Paul in the past. Of ah. your character died, and I'm looking for an appropriate scene to bring a new character in. And they even did that on a Critical Role at one point. They, someone died, and then they had one of the actors just hanging around for a whole episode, and they never got in the episode That's looking for the right funny. moment. And so this, right? And, uh, and this, and I feel like this advice of favor inclusion over realism is just this little nugget that I needed at a much earlier stage. That's a great. That's a great rule for role playing in general. Yeah, <laughs> all things, all parts of role playing. I well, think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't read that section of the. I Mavi, clearly too long rules even for me to read the whole thing for this. <laughs> I missed that running the game section. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, you weren't oh, running yes. the game, so you really didn't need that. Part, uh, so did I you? could skip it. You're right. I should have skipped it. I assumed it contained uh, lore information that I was not meant to yeah. have. So, uh, yeah. About, about the coffee coffee maker to sentient <laughs> robot upgrade process, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um. Uh, I will say that my oh yes, yeah, RDO different uh, kind of going to a new point here. Uh, my issue, I do still have an issue with the consequence style rules for combat. Although I obviously I thought you handled it really good. I think once you get into combat, it just feels gamier to me, maybe, and I just don't want it to be a narrative like that. Like obviously, you know, it's funny that Thinkbot did a really stupid thing and got absolutely dominated for it. Uh, and like, that's probably realistic too, cause he got shot a million times, but it's like, ah, I didn't, I was like, oh, I kind of thought we were starting combat or something like that, which is just my perspective on it. And I could definitely see how people would not like, would prefer the rules this way. But for me, when it gets into combat, I just want it to be gamier, I guess. Interesting. Interesting. I'll say a couple minutes ago when we were chatting about like how many death is on the line rolls should there be? And uh, William in the chat said, well, it depends on if you stand up from cover in front of a kill bot. That's... A lot of people saw that scene very differently than I did, apparently. So... <laughs> powerful uh, words, powerful uh, words. From William. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good advice for uh, all of us, I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I definitely uh, agree with you there, Max. Um, and it's something that I have been really trying to practice as I play more of these hmm. types of shooter of making a combat because I think there's advantages to it um, despite the obvious disadvantage of not you know it's tough like the issue that you had right where you're like are we in combat is this a combat uh, yeah. situation I don't you know you're not sure of uh, because I think it gives you the flexibility of having more dynamic scenes that involve combat that sure you yeah. that rules tend to slow down like i can imagine if we're doing like a grid based battle right that combat scene in the last episode in the second to last episode right where andy's character is sneaking ahead and basically doing most of the combat while everyone else is distracting them and doing something else like having dan and colleen's characters like hacking a robot and building a new kill bot and opening the, the gates could take four, three or four turns 
And that is just not super I did, exciting. I, that was the example, I as soon as I said that, that was the example that popped into my head from this game where I was like, but you know what? It did work really well for when they were doing that. So that's a good point. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think it takes, it's really tough to like set the scene and in your explanations as the, as the DM to like really hammer in to everybody. If they're in the area, like this is a hot situation. Like someone's <laughs> trying to kill you right now, no matter what you're doing. Right. It's funny. I, I, you know, I, I'm fiddling with my own system as I always am. Uh, and I've been thinking about that. Like, what is a, like, how do you tell someone combat has started in a game that's supposed to be more narrative? And it is bizarre. Uh, like it starts when the one guy gets shot to shit and is dead now. Like that's how you know that's a, <laughs> that did that really signified it. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, one thing I think you, you handled what a concern that I have for uh, for cyberpunk games is how do you handle the hacking, right? How do you handle the? Um, oh God! Now what am I supposed to call it these days? Uh, I really don't want to call it the metaverse, right? But the you know oh, the, the, the cyber sphere, right? The the you know the different plane of reality when you're when you're hacking the the when you're cyber hacking the cyber world, um, and 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 a concern is a you, uh, you might need to have different rules for it. And here the minimalist rules kind of take that off the page. I knew, you know, I knew exactly what the mechanic was going to be like going into it. And the other thing you worry about is under the don't split the party policy is it's sort of inherently a one person solo job is you're not it's you know you're not interacting with people usually when you do that and i think that that worked really much better than i expected it was it was short right there was there were a couple moments where my character was off in the hacking world it seemed short it seemed short it seemed to the point we got there, and frankly, the the one thing that to me helped the most, Christian, is that you'd prepared a handout of the user interface, and that immediately dropped me into this different um, perspective of what it looked cool. like instead of the real world. And just that one little handout you have, and I just it just took a second where I actually had to like mentally parse what I was looking at, and I was confused just for a second, and it really did a fantastic job for me to throw me. On to now. Uh, now William wants me to call it the information superhighway, which is great. Um, <laughs> That's acceptable. I really felt like I was in the pipes. I really did. So I thought that worked worked super well. And I would recommend other people like just have a little handout of like what it looks like because that all of a sudden really put me right into the milieu. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that you you felt like it worked. Um, that is that system, that tree is something I stole from uh, Cyberpunk Red. Uh, I got the quick start oh. rules, and that that's their quick oh. start hacking. Is you set up a tree that's like a server, and each level is different, has a different piece of information or something on it, um, which I cool. just think is a brilliant way to do that fast hacking of like. Of those like action scenes, like you described, Dan, of the where usually a hacker will go and they'll hack, um, and then you know two hours later in real world time they'll be done, and uh, in game mm -hmm. time it's been 50 seconds. And how do you reconcile that? 
Um, I think William yeah. mentioned in the chat Shadowrun ages ago, and Shadowrun really uh, suffers from that. Where hackers uh, take okay. like seven or eight actions for every meat <laughs> space action. And it's just there you go. unbearable. Meat space. There you go. I, I haven't yeah. played Shadowrun, but I've, I, it's coming back that I think I've read or someone told me in the distant past about that problem. So I think that that's exactly what I was concerned about going into this game. Yeah. And I think when I think about Cyberpunk 2, that's kind of, I think that also feeds into like just the way I do Cyberpunk is to me, right, there's kind of like two, maybe two and a half types of hacking. There's like Hacking where, you, like in the last few episodes, where you're like, I want to hack into this control module and take control over all the bots. And I'm like, great, that's one action. Um, where it's like a dice roll or something like that. Uh, then there's the more like exploratory one, which is what we went through with that handout in the tree, which mm. I think it takes, it's an amount of time, but it's not like the only thing happening, but it is an important scene to play um and then there's the kind of i think the snow crash style hacking of like and now we're yeah. in right, the information superhighway and yeah. we're all there and we're flying yeah. around and we're our avatars and stuff like that which to me i think is the easiest way to play it where you just make sure everybody gets in make sure everybody's okay. in and then it's okay. just another set. and it's just the game yeah okay okay yeah i guess i guess that um, makes sense yeah I, I like it felt special. It like it felt here it at least here it felt special that my character was doing that and other people weren't. Um so yeah. it felt like a nice spice and 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 you would want it to be very short if that was the case. Yeah. Generally I agree uh, that hacking I think should be yeah. short and should make the hacker feel cool because that's why yeah. you're playing a hacker yeah. character, right? If you now if you if you had everyone as avatars, right, then you could go then it would be a different thing if you were like actually interacting with NPCs in cyberspace or interacting with an AI would be kind of the next obvious thing. Um, but that kind of um, uh, interaction role play, that would go much on much longer and you would need everybody to be part of it if you're doing that. Yeah. Um, that's cool. I, that, oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the like solution to that that I've never actually run, but the one I think about all the time is you just have the hacker have to move around in real space. And then you have kind of a funny scene where the hacker is in this alternate world. They're in like a, a digital dealing with like digital baristas that represent different nodes of information. And uh, all their friends are fighting security and kill bots in like a grungy office hallway, right? That's really funny. Um, uh, I like that. <laughs> Uh, I would love to see hacking rules uh, like that for combat. I would like to see a system where combat is one person's of the group's specialty. I feel like that scratches a particular adventure movie kind of itch. Uh, I wonder if that could be done. It's a random thought. Uh, but I like That's you know, a great well, I was thinking. You know, I was thinking about when Dan said, well, if it's the thing that I do that makes me look cool, it has to be short because nobody else gets to do it, which is cool. And I love the I love when a person like when one of the players gets to do that. And it would be cool if that were combat, too. Uh, or at least I play with a lot of people who seem to not like to do combat. So I'd love to you know, it'd be really cool to have a way to have combat be one person's cool thing. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. 
I mean, you know, like you, you can go back to the the Tunnels and Trolls game, which is like the second ever RPG, oh. where like the the combat is extract ex, it, it, it is abstracted to the point where it's just one roll. You just you walk sure in the room, you're fighting a troll. One fight. roll, roll one oh. die, and it's over one way or the other. Wow, damn, wow. Uh, that's less complicated than uh, than snakes and ladders there or whatever. Uh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Right. What? What? Like other? I'm not a big cyberpunk. Is related to the other genre. I hate sci-fi. Uh, I assume we all feel the same way about that. Uh, what? What other than hacking is like the cyberpunk? To me, it's like people or like robots. Yeah, X card. X card. Sci-fi is bad. Yeah. Yeah. X card and bad. <laughs> yeah. Rewind. I'm gonna rewind that. Uh, you know, in damn safety tools, there's a BS <laughs> card. I'm just like I'm throwing yeah. the bullshit card. <laughs> Um, what other than like hacking is like, I guess mechanically to me, it's like hacking and cybernetics, I guess, or at least that's what it is in the two games I've also played with Christian. And uh, you know, that's what it is in Deus Ex to me too, which I guess people would say is cyberpunk. Are there other, like, are those the two things? It's funny that neither of those things are mechanically really in the game. If that is the case. I think mechanically speaking, it's hacking is one um i think cybernetics is the is another okay i guess cybernetics is mechanically in the game i had cybernetics and for me and what i think the biggest one is is gear um because i think for me at least when i think of cyber a cyberpunk role-playing game it's you start off usually as like just the worst possible criminals and you make money and you spend that money on cool stuff that you then mm. get to use. And just having cool and interesting tools that have one use, and then you do use it for that thing, and you're like, that's rad. I spent $10,000 on this huh? air tank that's installed into my chest so I don't breathe toxic gas, you know? And now I get to use it. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. What or would you say? Yeah. motorcycles. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I like that. And again, see, that's it's funny how it feeds how how you're right that this that the, the the cyberpunk setting works really well with these roles. And again, that feeds like surprisingly well into the oldest of old school D and D, where your characters were all pretty vanilla. You didn't have too much too many options to pick from, and basically all of your variety came from your equipment, your magic gear. So the the, dis, the distinction between the characters in, in old school D&D was mostly who's got the intelligent sword and what kind of magic armor do I have? And do I have a, a crystal ball? And do I have a medallion of ESP, stuff like that? And so it's weird how familiar this felt to me. Um, and it, uh, it felt reasonable that you could gain it and lose it. Um, I'm not, I'm not oh. literally um, permanently crippling my character the, the gear will come and the gear will go. And that felt like a, a reasonable game mechanic. I like that a lot. That's cool. And definitely felt to me like a variation on the magic sword style thing, where obviously that's, that's the thing I'm never going to let break or let out of my hands or sight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time we broke something, they, so, so like, I think the very first time we broke something, I had this moment of like real horror like 
Um, <laughs> oh my God, right? That's the worst thing that can possibly happen to your character. You lost your equipment. Um, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess that's what that's supposed to feel like. But we, you know, the rules do say I will be able to buy it back later if I get some money. Uh, and I was like, okay, that's how this game's going to work. That's 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 pretty reasonable. It did yeah. instantly make me want to start hoarding cash. Uh, <laughs> that was very funny. Um, definitely, like I know this game isn't even probably going to go on this long. I'm still not going to let this one dollar go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as an aside, that's one thing I really like about the Inner System Blues is the money of everything costs about one credit, and if it's if it's something smaller than what you would spend a credit on, don't bother. Which I think is a great way of having the I want to buy lots of cool stuff without having to keep track of like what fraction of ten thousand you know euros is this gun? Like I don't want to know. I I also like that, right? I read the rules and I was like, this is this is great. Everything's you you start off with a smartphone, which my character immediately threw over the board yeah. on the ship, um, plus two credits, and everything on this suggested gear list costs one credit. So a cyber eye, cyber ear, grenades, whatever, rifle costs one credit. I like that a lot. In play, that was great. I feel like at the end of our session, I feel that we ran into a problem with that, that then we were talking about high-end cars, right? Like the Akira motorcycle or these high-end cars. And all of a sudden, none of us had any idea what the cars should cost. Yeah. I think I think clearly our instinct was the cars weren't going to be one credit. But then having said that, then what are they? And I think on the player's That's end, I think point, we yeah. were thinking like maybe two or five or 10 credits. And then I think Christian said like a new car would be 100 credits and we all lost our minds. And I think, you know, and we you can buy you know, so if we were many cybernetic eyes. <laughs> right, exactly. And if we were, we were going to retcon this, I think if we go back to the last episode, I think right at the end, I think Christian said you each get like, 16 credits for each of 20 cars or something like that. Actually, I do have that written yeah. down. Yeah, huh. right. So we got we got 120 credits total. And I will say that like on in the rules under advancement, and I just noticed that it says advancement after a job increases skill. And if you get paid, all gain D6 credits. So um, I feel like oh. maybe a little bit, right? So a little bit of sketching out like what higher end huh. things would be maybe that's an expansion like what is a car what is a tank what is it what is a ship um because they can't, those things can't all be one credit yeah and obviously andy that's... really really wanted a cool motorcycle is that a credit cool Even yeah <laughs> i i definitely that's something if i were to use this system for longer term games that i would want that's most of i think what my prep work would be of like sketching out a huh. loose economy but I feel confident that I could do that in the thing. Because, right, probably a normal car would cost the same as a robotic eye. But high-end, maybe it goes up. Makes sense. Um, I, I think there's also... And I'm, I'm not totally on board with this idea. But I think it's one that the game does present of a credit and money being different. Where a credit is a mechanical oh. thing that you... To improve your character, and your character also has some money that they buy the stuff the, that they use to buy uninteresting things. Like, do they own a sports car 
that they take to car shows, sure, why not? Do they have a big van that's armor-proof that has a bunch of drones in it? That costs credits. Interesting. I can see that. I. It does hurt what I think people, one thing people, for whatever reason, really like, which is just owning luxury items inside role-playing games as rewards. <laughs> for whatever reason, I think that's always a fun reward to seek, and that does kind of hurt that mechanically, you know. Um, but do those do do people ever buy those luxury items, or do they steal them? Now, uh, in Dan's well, game, we would traditionally point. buy them because it was the only way we could carry all the money. So it was sort of a. Hey, that's a good point. You're, you're right. Maybe it is usually stealing. Uh, <laughs> we had to convert many thousands of gold pieces into uh, a small uh, weight. Um, I definitely have. Quest also does this. I definitely have liked the idea of having economic systems that are uh, not tried a one-to-one with any sort of in-game currency, you know. It kind of matches the real world where there's all sorts of currencies and they don't all count in in different places, but you can still count things as valuable or worth someone, you know, someone would accept this as payment for an item in some way, you know. Yeah. Like like how Fate has a resources skill that just is a very loose yeah liquid money at any given time interesting interesting uh should we you know hit, let me okay let me, we hit, oh yeah let me uh, let me touch before we get too far let me just hit one thing that william threw in the chat a couple minutes ago we were talking about breaking the equipment um being pretty useful in this game and william was saying uh that he can see that breaking mechanic in a fantasy setting Seems like Fafford and the Grey Mouse are lose their stuff and have it back in the next story. And the funny thing is, right, is I actually struggle with that in D&D. I want that. And now it's mostly me just talking to William at this point because I was actually, William and I were emailing the other day, right? And I, I shared with him the, the the fumble rules that I currently use with you guys when we play, you know, D&D at HelgaCon or whatever. And so I have this really little minimalist chart you roll a natural one and then you roll another d20, you go to this chart and, and one, it's like you hit yourself, two, you hit a friend, three, uh, I think you fall down, four, you break your weapon, and five, you just drop your weapon. I think that's what I have there. And so that you know that's me trying to work in breaking your weapons, which absolutely should happen once in a while, rarely in a medieval fight. And I have not, and I, I was walking around just yesterday, I have still not found any good way that feels right to me to break the armor. Um, you know, and I know and some people have this like shields must be broken rule whereby you get hit and the play at the player's option, they can decide to sacrifice their shield to avoid the hit. And again, to me, that feels like, a, you know, the, the player narrative control thing that doesn't feel right. It feels like when you when you break your shield in real life, you are not going to be in control of that. It's going to be a horrible uh-huh. thing that you didn't intend and you're not happy about it. Um, so I actually don't, and I've, I've never, you know, and so you could think about like having a critical hit damages the opponent's armor, but that's never going to make enough difference for the attacker to be interesting. So I agree that I kind of feel that like classic D&D needs more equipment being broken. And I uh-huh. have I have struggled with that and never really found a perfect way to work that in. The, uh, I mean, what I really liked about it in 2400 was how simple it was, too, because I feel like a lot of this equipment breaking kind of thing also 
has a tendency to lead towards a lot, you know, management or like uh, like number crunching stuff. And I loved how quick and narrative this one was. It either is broken and it absolutely is useless to you or it works perfectly fine. That was my favorite part of, of that. It's just something you have or you don't have. Yeah. I agree with As that. As opposed to like durability. Something, something like, like that. that, yeah, which is often even the shield that kind of shields maybe <laughs> shields will be shattered rule. I love that that's the actual title for it. Um, <laughs> rule also kind of feels a little managementy then because then my shield's gone and now I got to mark down that I'm going to erase the damn thing from my sheet yeah. and I got to mark down that I got to go buy another shield. Whereas here I don't even need to. Yeah. I just put a little marker on the stuff that was broken. I didn't even need to. It was fine that I wrote it in pet. I was that was great. You know, and I will say, you know, that's another thing I learned in our last D&D campaign, actually, because I think, Christian, you had a you had a magic shield, right? And at some point I rolled into one of those rules. And I think I think it was like a plus one shield. And I think when on the one yeah. hit, I reduced the bonus by one or something like that. Yeah. And, and then you were shield. still carrying it around. Right. And you were still carrying it around. We we're debating how to get the plus one back. And in retrospect, yeah. I was like. I'm not happy with this incremental damaging. I would rather I should just take it off the table. It should just be broken and shattered and gone would be more dramatic and, and a clearer. And maybe even if I make it harder, I, I think I also came to that same thing is it's better to just have it be either fine or gone. Um, and I think I learned that the last time we were playing D&D together. Yeah. I, I even really like, and I think, oh, sorry. Yeah. Because uh, uh, then it gives yeah. you that of like you can decide to break it totally and be, but like if you feel like not doing that much damage, you can just say, "Oh, it's broken," but you can fix it. So you still have that ability to tweak it and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. modulate it. Yeah, the idea that the broken equipment just comes back automatically—I—that's what I really think I like about it. And I think fits in that like Fafford and Gray Mouser thing, where yeah, they lost their weapons all the time, but they always just had another one ready to go. Like it wasn't like it didn't feel like it. You know, it didn't feel managed. It doesn't feel managementy that way. I guess is what. Yeah. Should we should we hit the For last? Sure. We had one more question in Discord. I think. Uh, yeah. Which was how much you had prepared versus how much you had used, like uh, interest in how your the GM notes were structured. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's kind of funny that that question came up because uh, uh, a friend of ours, Andre, uh, messaged me and was we were chatting about that recently too. Um, me too. And yep. this- <laughs> um, sorry, that was Orbel. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Um, for this game in particular, um, uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about how I just, as a DM, prepare my notes. Um, so for this game, I had kind of, I, I outlined the job, which was inspired by that real news story of the cargo ship that went aflame in the middle of the ocean <laughs> full of uh, luxury cars. Um and I kind of had everything figured out with Metal Mouth and then the, you know, maybe adding an extra element of it of they have to find out where the ship is um, and the few little, um, like, there were a couple of bonuses there, like the extra money that you got from hacking or if you decided to, there were other ways you could get the cars off the ship if you got a bit creative uh, or explored the ship a bit more. 
so those things I kind of hashed out right at the beginning. Um, and I had, I usually, when I, when I create like a, a session, like a game like this, where it's like a beginning to end kind of um, one shot style, uh, I usually chart it out with like an arc, right? Of like, first they do this and then some stuff happens and eventually they'll get here and then it ends, you know, somewhere else. Um, whenever, so for those, I usually have like, nodes or scenes that I know are going to happen for this, right? It's the negotiation with Metal Mouth, the uh, breaking into uh, the Everglades Research Park, and then um, on the boat itself. For those, I have a general idea of what I want to happen, right? Of whether it's I challenge them with some guards or I know like it's going to be a little bit risky or it's going to be very risky. Um, and I kind of spent some time outlining what that looks like. Uh, and past that, though, I usually leave it very open. Like, in the, in the Everglades Park, I knew that there were two guards, there are some alligators there messing around, and that's really it, you know. I, I knew that they were underfunded and undersupported. Uh, so everything else that came out from that was just sort of inspired by their two guards, nobody really cares about them. They barely care about their jobs. Uh, and there are some alligators, because I just thought it would be fun to attack you with alligators. Hey, it's the Everglades. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then for the boat, which I imagined more as like a, a multiple elements, right? A multi-section kind of scene. Uh, I had kind of a, a sense of what the boat looked like, what was on each car, each level, each deck. Um, and how you would navigate it, and the different ways that you could get cars off the ship. Cool. Um, and that kind of how I generally feed, prep my notes is is that way, where I'll have like overarching ideas written down somewhere, and during a session, I'll or or an individual session, I'll like hand write out specific points that I want to hit um, that I use to then inspire what I riff off of. Um, so I'd say most of it got used because I don't really prep everything down to the letter. Um, there were things that, you know, I thought you might do that you didn't. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope that uh, uh, kind of speaks to my, my note and prepping style a little bit. Cool. Is cool. That, I'll uh, throw a quick uh, shout out. We, ha we have a new viewer, uh, Lucy WH. Uh, welcome, Lucy. Um, and we are currently recapping our recent uh, cyberpunk RPG that we were playing for a couple of weeks. So I think we I think we, we well, probably all three of us possibly nice see what recap episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the so end of one that. We fact, have yeah. our, we have archives <laughs> of the uh, the shows we played. Uh, I think on our YouTube channel will still be there. YouTube wandering the ends. Um, uh, so we so here we are doing our analysis <laughs> of a of a of a game. And yes, we are very serious about it. <laughs> yeah. So Christian, uh, how many like how many total pages is that? Like your notes would be like total length would be what? Uh let me grab my notebook and I'll I'll tell you. Yeah, grab it. So as, as you do that, right, on it's funny because Andre and I were also having the same chat and I said to him, I probably over prepare and I always write really extensive notes that I might not recommend that other people do the same, but mine tend to go on and on. Uh, yeah, so it is. It is like this size notes, uh, like yeah. it's three pages of stuff that I are like those 
very well fleshed out rules. Um, and then like a page per session where I'll write notes during the session and then just have my outline of what's going to happen. Cool. Cool. Um, yep, that's the way to do cool. that. That's, that's, that's basically the amount. I, I also tend to over-prepare, but in the same, like, I tend to over-prepare and then I'll just keep writing different scenes that I think might come up, which is also, I think, a bad idea. Uh, uh yeah, that's cool. It felt very, I, you know, I'm always impressed, incidentally, by Christian's games. They always feel like Christian wrote the entire thing down, and I can't believe it's only uh, two pages of notes. I played an extended, I think we played a multi-session games where afterwards I was like, it was cool that Christian read that book and used the plot of that book as our entire game, uh, and it went flawlessly. <laughs> yep, yep. You know, Max, I gotta say, so this is this is like a little personal thing coming in here. So, so you, you let's get real personal. Now that this, we got people coming in, let's yeah, start I'm talking about. Just, I'm gonna really yeah. call Max out here. Yeah. Is I, um, you know, you once did a stage show here in New York with our friend Stephen, which I, which I uh, just adored, and Thank you, you. Had, you guys had this one joke, right? That like all of our, like we have a whole bunch of friends that do improv um, that we talk about a lot. And then the joke on stage was, well, you know, it's like improv, except that we wrote it in advance. Like, what is that? I guess we need a name for that. It should be, it should be primprov. And and then the, the, the yeah. primprov <laughs> thing totally lives rent free in my head, and I really uh, love that. Um, and uh, so we funny. we do. So I think Max and I do a lot of primprov. We will do a whole lot of advanced preparation for improvisational gaming. It's that's that's a great way to describe. Yeah, it's a lot of preparation, and then I improv the entire game. That's really how I I feel like I prepare is that I have a lot of notes and I use none of them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. You know, I guess Andre is just running the game because he also asked me about that, and I always struggle to tell people how I prepare for games because I often feel like I I want, I feel like I prepare a lot and then make everything up, and I don't know how to describe that. I'm glad Dan and I are on the same our same boat, and I'd someday love to see Dan's notes the, for scenes that we never got to play in various games. <laughs> you know, I do have deceit. I do have a tendency to go into, into conditionals of like if the players do this, then do this. Ah, but if they do this, then this okay, happens. Okay. But if they do this, but then if this happens, do this. And you know, and sometimes I wonder how how useful that is because it can just go on forever. Obviously, yeah, just an infinite an infinite switch statement, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely also like to draw a lot of maps, if only because I have a really bad, like, I guess, topographical mind or whatever. Like, it's hard for me to imagine what spaces look like, so I really like drawing maps that relate to my notes so I can have some spatial awareness of it. I think Christian is much uh, better at thinking in that way and so doesn't have the reliance on maps to his notes, but... Yeah, I, uh, I, maps I always wing. I'm always like, I guess this is what this scene looks like. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also, I do, like William says, I actually do uh, have a whole lot of advanced arguments in my head. That actually is a thing. <laughs> I better, I better make sure I have my, the full decision tree of this argument ready. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I've got the perfect snappy comeback if they ever yeah. say this. <laughs> Um, Great. Were there other? Well, any, did we hit everything? I know. Uh, All right. Well, let me throw this out. So I th- it was very helpful that if <laughs> if anybody wants to know about this horrible thing that again <laughs> I thought was common knowledge and really shouldn't be, 
Uh, way back at the top of the show, Vance reminded me of the name <laughs> of the uh, performance art group that wires up dead animal corpses into robots and has them fight. And they are called Survival Research Laboratories. Survival Research. I'm just going to briefly read the top of the Wikipedia article. Survival Research Laboratories is an American performance art group that pioneered the genre of large-scale machine performance, founded in 1978 by Mark Pauline. The group is known in particular, yeah, is known in particular for their performances where custom-built machines, often robotic, compete to destroy each other. The performances, described by one critic as, quote, noisy, violent, and destructive, unquote, <laughs> are noted for the visual and oral cacophony created by the often wow. dangerous interactions of the machinery. Wow. Um, so they're not talking about the, uh, the, use of, um, the use of animals. I guess most recently in 2006, they performed a scene called Ghostly Scenes of Infernal Desecration in San Jose. And the performance featured an air launcher, a hovercraft, and a shockwave cannon. I got it. I really want to see one of these shows now. This sounds fantastic. Uh... That's cyberpunk right there. Uh, yeah, now that's yeah, it is, cyberpunk it, 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 now. Yeah, right. And again, that came up because I think they, the sketches from uh, the the lead person sketchbook were used as the cover for that uh, storming the reality studio uh, book that I just adored. I just adored back in '92. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was that was on my mind. That was on my mind when I was in college. A lot of that stuff. And what's it? What's it like to use your bodies in 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 new weird ways that that haven't been haven't been seen before? Um, my final thought is that you should definitely buy twenty four hundred. I really think it only costs like five bucks, and uh, the way it is get, written, there's what you get like twelve games or fifteen it's games. A, it's more than that. I, I really think. It could be 24 games, uh, and they are written in such a way that it's really easy to pick. Like, each game tends to have one mechanical setting or, or setting mechanic to it, and you could easily steal those and stick and shove them all together on your own or stick them into a different game. It's a really, I think, modular kind of thing, and there's a lot of good stuff in there, even if you're not running 2400 specifically. Yeah. Do you have the... Uh... The, the page open right now, Max. Um, I just think yes. we should credit the author. Uh, yes. name I'm blanking. Uh, it's Jason Tachi. Jason Tachi, thank you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I second that. Big recommend. Uh, it's an awesome read through and really good rules. Um, yeah, oh, I'm great. actually in okay. chat. Put that yeah, and back yeah, just put the link in chat to drive oh, from our Oh, damn, so did I. Thank you. Ah. Oh, he linked it? Wow. All right, well, I totally failed. I have no idea. All right. All he's right. the this pro. Is I stay out. Yeah, he's, this is he's the I pro stay with that, Max. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. All right. <laughs> he's the best. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining. Thank you for your questions and your uh, chat. Uh, this was a, a great Q&A episode. Um, Thanks for running the game. Tuned. It was really fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for playing. Uh, stay tuned uh, in the Discord and watch the channels for uh, what's happening next on TDR. Uh, we're in a bit of a flux spot right now, so uh, whatever happens next will surely be exciting. Uh, thank you guys for joining. <laughs> um, uh, 
And while you're doing that, uh, don't forget to tune in to the Wandering DMs uh, talk show on Sunday. Uh, this Sunday, uh, we have special guest uh, Spencer Crittenden, who was the game master on the uh, Harmon Quest TV show um, uh, with uh, Dan Harmon, of course. And he has a podcast currently and is producing D&D content on YouTube. So uh, Paul and I will be interested in speaking to Spencer on Sunday and uh, hear his experiences uh, GMing on a, on a very public, very public venue for a very <laughs> short amount of time uh, at, a, at a time and see what it was, how different it was to GM in those kinds of games. So I'm personally really excited to speak to Spencer Crittenden on this Sunday, 1 p.m. Yeah, definitely check that out. If I can wake up by Great. 1 p.m., I really want to watch that live because uh, I like Harmon <laughs> Quest, but that's a it's a tough yeah, sell. Max, <laughs> join us and uh, and get your questions in the live chat, and we'll get them to Spencer on the fly, and we'll see. Great, uh, Ooh, yeah, we'll I'll, I'll donate so I can get the uh, I get the pop up message. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> with a super chat, super chat. Yeah, on super chat. I'm gonna super chat him. <laughs> there you go. It's good. Uh, good policy. Good plan. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, again, thank you, uh, everybody, for joining us, and we will catch you next time. Uh, good night, everybody. Good night.